Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Uh, And a very warm welcome to this evening's event, including to our, I'm sure, very extensive online audience, as well as those of you uh, who are here in person. Um, This is an event uh, supported by uh, the Meradium Foundation and organized by the Economics Department at the LSE. My name's Tim Besley, and I'm a member of the Economics Department. And we're here this evening to both celebrate but also to interrogate the ideas in Martin Wolf's new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Um, Martin needs very little by way of introduction. Many of you will be avid readers of his columns in the Financial Times, as well as his uh, uh, extensive collection of books. Um, But uh, his main title is the Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. We have two excellent discussants who are going to uh, respond to some of the ideas in in Martin's book. Um, Diane Coyle, who's the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge, um, also having a a very varied and interesting career, both as a a journalist, as a practicing economist, and now as an academic. And uh, Jesse Norman, MP for Hereford, Minister of State for Decarbonization and Technology in the Department of Transport, but also uh, an, uh, an author of books on Adam Smith, on, uh, on Edmund Burke, um, and uh, also with a PhD in philosophy, which is a somewhat unusual uh, background for, for an MP. Um, anyway, we, we are delighted to welcome you here. I'm going to invite Martin to the podium. He will speak for approximately 20, uh, 25 minutes. We'll then hear from the two respondents. We'll have a little bit of a conversation, and then we'll throw it, up, uh, throw it open to the floor for questions and further discussion. So over to you, Martin, and and thanks for joining us. So um, I'm stunned by the size of the audience. The idea there are lots of people online, too, makes it even more remarkable. I assume this is because of the title. Um, People really love talking about crises, in my experience, and not about me. Um, (laughs) Let me... Let me um, explain what I'm going to do. This is quite a large book. It's smaller than it was before the editors got to work, very helpfully. But it's a pretty large book, and it contains a lot of different subjects and ideas. And in 25 minutes, I cannot possibly cover them. So what I'm going to do in my speech um, uh, is basically focus on how I see the problem. What is the crisis? And its nature and the the core idea I have of how we're going to have to tackle it. Um, But the discussion of policy and institutional reforms, which is, I think, much more open-ended than one's understanding of the crisis, to which there can be many different responses, will be left to the subsequent discussion or perhaps to some of you, I hope many of you, reading it. So let me start off then with my analysis of the crisis. Um, I should perhaps explain that the book was conceived uh, already in 2016. It took a long time for me to work through the subject to my satisfaction, to understand how we got to where we are. 
which was pretty obviously by then uh, a breakdown of some things that we took for granted about how democracy was working and would work in future. I'm going to start with two quotations. Um, I'll tell you who the author of the first one was after I've given it to you. Um, it is clear then that the best partnership in a state is the one which operates through the middle people or the middle classes. And also that those states in which the middle element is large and stronger if possible than the other two together, by which the author meant the plutocrats, the aristocrats, on the one hand and the very poor on the other, or at any rate stronger than either of them alone, have every chance of having... What's wrong? Well, one of the best, one of the biggest themes of this book is that technology is destroying civilization. <laughs> and, and I think we have seen a perfect demonstration. So, um, so what I was saying that the, um, the best partnership in the state is the one which operates through the middle people. And um, if the, the, the middle people, the middle class are stronger than either the aristocracy or uh, the poor, um, or, or at any rate stronger than either of them alone, these states have every chance of having a well-run democratic constitution. And this analysis comes from one of the two most important books on politics ever written, and certainly on democratic politics, it's Aristotle. And the, uh, and the second quotation, which is, I suppose, a motto for me and my life, and will probably absolutely infuriate everybody here under 40, is, um, but explains how I think of these things, comes from the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, and it's Merda Nagan, or never too much. In other words, a good society depends on balancing irreconcilables. It isn't possible to have a society in which you have everything some people want without living in a permanent civil war. Um, that's my view. In 1937, my father left Vienna for England on his own. His immediate family managed by a miracle to escape to Palestine in 39. Their wider family was stuck in Poland and with the exception of one young woman, perished in the Holocaust. In May 1940, my mother's father, a self-made Jewish fish merchant, hijacked a trawler in order to take his family to England as German armies poured across the Dutch frontier. He was one of nine siblings. He asked his brothers and sisters to join him with their families. None came. Their families also all perished in the Holocaust. I'm not certain of the numbers, but somewhere between 40 and 50 of my parents, aunts, uncles, and cousins were killed. And this was, of course, the result of the collapse of civilized order in the interwar years in Europe. There were many reasons for this, but without doubt, in my view and many others, a central one was the economic calamities, including the shattering disaster of the Great Depression. And that indeed, this awareness of the possibility of economic failure was one of the reasons I first became interested in economics long ago. And that is also why the theme of this book, which I began as Donald Trump became president of the US and we were seized by the Brexit campaign, 
matters to me personally. One cannot assume the stability of a civilized democracy. One simply cannot assume it. This does not mean that I am forecasting the 1930s. Let me be quite clear. But do not assume that what one has will last. But let me talk about what I call the democratic recession. Actually, it's what Larry Diamond, a very famous scholar of these of, of democracy who teaches at Stanford, calls it. In a liberal democracy, a democracy characterized by civil rights, the rule of law, and respect for both the rights of the losers and the legitimacy of the winners, fair elections determine who holds power. Attempts by a head of government and state to subvert the election or overturn the vote are treason. Yet that is clearly what Donald Trump attempted to do both before and after last year's presidential election. He failed. Decent and brave people ensured that. But to this day, despite what happened recently in the midterms, Trump has largely continued to hold the loyalty of his party's base. Just look at the recent polls. And it is perfectly possible that his successor could be worse because more ruthless and better organized. But Trump is not alone, though what is happening in the US is clearly more important than in any other country because of its political significance. Freedom in the World 2021, the last issue of that august publication from the independent US watchdog Freedom House, published in February, reported a 15th consecutive year of decline in the health of liberal democracy worldwide. So the democratic recession noted by Larry Diamond in the, of, the, of Stanford about 15 years ago is now surely by those standards closer to a democratic depression. The decline Freedom House notes has occurred in all regions of the world, including notably in democracies that emerged after the end of the Cold War. But most significantly, it is also observable in core Western democracies and above all in the US, the most important of all of them. Indeed, the country that surely saved democracy in the middle of the 20th century. So let me start with, I'm not going to go through all these. This is the book. That's the quote I've just given you. This is a bit of Greek for you. And, and uh, I spent a lot of my life reading Greek. So, um, this is the estimate, one of the most recent estimates at the end of the Trump presidency of the relative quality of the major core democracies of the world. And 100 is near perfect, so we can say their judgment, there were a number of countries close to perfect. Uh, UK was significantly well behind, but basically the US was in a category of its own in terms of its quality, i.e. seriously bad. So that's where we are in the view of Freedom House. So let's turn then to the second question I want to discuss, which is where did democratic capitalism come from? Where did the system we run? Let me just make clear when I talk about capitalism, I just mean a market economy with private ownership. I don't want to get into lots of semantics about what capitalism means, though that's discussed in the book. According to one well-known database, which goes back two centuries, the Polity 4 database, there were no democracies in the world, as they define it, 200 years ago. 
there were only oligarchies or monarchies. Even where republic institutions did exist, the franchise was dramatically restricted on the grounds of sex, race, and wealth. In the US, for example, in 1800, according to one source, the proportion of the adult population with a vote in 1800 was about 6%. Then in the 19th century, franchise began to be widened and through many conflicts, and which I can't discuss, universal suffrage democracy emerged finally in fits and starts to cover about half of the world's countries after 1990. But in the West, the Western world, the world of Europe, and in the, the North America, and some other places around the world, universal suffrage democracy is about 100 years old. Perhaps a little bit more, but it's only about 100 years old. So let me just show you this, I think, rather interesting chart, which shows what happened to democracy, according to this source, over the last um, 200, well, it's actually 140 years. And I think it's really a rather fascinating picture. And on the whole, really quite an encouraging one. So this shows the brown line, which I'm going to focus on, shows the proportion of the world's countries, not people, world's countries, that lived in democracies as Polity 4 defines it. And that, though, is not universal suffrage democracy, just a significant amount of democracy. Back in 1870, they think that if the countries then were independent, remember many were in empires, there were about 10% were in democracies. That rose to 40% by just after the First World War. So it was a dramatic democratization. In the interwar years, there was a calamitous, a colossal collapse, which is what I was referring to at the beginning of my lecture. After the war, it rose somewhat to 30%. But a lot of the reason it didn't rise more is there were vastly more countries, and many of them became dictatorships. But then after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a dramatic rise in the proportion of the um, democracies. If we were, unfortunately, I don't have data after the, to 2010, but if we had it now, it would probably have fallen back to a little under 50%. So we're on the decline, but not that dramatic. I also put in the ratio of world trade to GDP, which is one measure of how capitalist we were. And the interesting thing is that there seems to be a correlation. The correlation, I suggest, is generally we favor open trade when things are going well, when we're feeling optimistic, and we're, when we're pessimistic and the economy is going badly, we close it down. That's what happened in the interwar years, and it's what's beginning to happen uh, again. So why were democratic principles accepted by so many, so many countries? This was an extraordinary revolution in the last two centuries. After all, as we know very well, the normal way to structure the economies and politics of complex society has been for power to, to be married to wealth and wealth to be married to power. In other words, the rich had all the power and the powerful had all the rich all the wealth. That was basically how most societies were organized, including very much our own prior to um, the, the, the recent centuries. So uh, the explanation for this transformation then lies with the emergence of a marriage built on liberal ideas and various other things I'm going to talk about 
between those ostensibly very different partners, a liberal economy and a democratic polity. I regard these two systems for the economy and the polity, I call them complementary opposites. The market economy and universal suffrage democracy share things that matter. They reject ascribed hereditary status. Market capitalism rests on ideals of free labor, individual effort, reward for merit, and the rule of law. It can't exist without the latter. Democracy rests on the ideals of free discussion and debate among citizens in making the law. Historically, the market economy brought urbanization, an educated workforce, very important, and a newly organized working class, industrial working class, as a potent political force creating new parties and transforming politics throughout the, um, the world, in our world. So I argue markets protect democratic politics from excessive concentration of political power. If the state owns and controls all, everything in a society, it's almost impossible to run democratic politics because there's no basis from which to do so. But democratic politics, it protects markets from an excessive concentration of market power while dealing with the most disastrous consequences of markets for the majority of the people. And this then is the way in which market economies and liberal democracy are complementary, but they are also fundamentally opposed to each other. Capitalism is inherently cosmopolitan, the democratic state is of course territorial. The market is a domain of exit, democracy that of voice. The market economy is inegalitarian, potentially radically so. Democracy is egalitarian. Its basic premise is that all people are equal. Tensions inevitably emerge. If the economy fails to serve the interests of the majority, the sense of shared citizenship on which democracies depend will fray and populist demagogues are bound to arise. Populism is not necessarily lethal for democracy, so as long as it takes the form of a justified, even highly fruitful hostility to elites. But too often, in the past and now, it turns into hostility to pluralism itself. And pluralism is an inevitable and essential element in any true democratic society. Democracy may then be transformed into a plebiscitary dictatorship and ultimately a dictatorship to core. Alternatively, the concentration of wealth in the market may lead to outright plutocracy as wealth is transmuted into power. And both dangers are very present today. So what has gone wrong in our democracies? I argue that large rises in inequality and the deteriorating prospects of many people in particular, the old working and important parts of the middle classes in core democracies have played a crucial role in breaking the foundations and the legitimacy of our democracy. In particular, the emerging fear of downward mobility in stagnant economies has created status anxiety and profound political cynicism. These have been diverted by skilled propagandists into cultural and racial resentments. The emergence of the new media has clearly facilitated these trends, but in my view, they have not created them. A big question is what has happened to create these concerns in the people. 
and I argue the most important phenomena, but much more, have been economic, deindustrialization, rising inequality, and falling productivity growth. These are profoundly important transformations of our society in the recent past. So this shows the end, the dramatic decline in the industrial, the share of industry in employment, and with it, of course, a dramatic decline, as you all know, in the trade union role in our public life. Um, so the red column shows the shares of industry in the labor force in 1970. The, the, the dark blue, uh, looks black, but it's dark blue, is the share now. And these are ranked by the declines in the share. You will be interested to see that the absolute decline in the share working industry in the UK is the biggest of these countries, which are the G7 plus Spain. The US and UK are also, by the way, the most unequal of the big high-income democracies, according to standard OEC data, and they have also had some of the most potent populist politics. I doubt that whether that's actually an accident. Another crucial complementary fact is that there has been a dramatic decline in the rate of productivity growth or out breadth of growth of output per hour in our economies since the 50s, 60s, and 70s, with the 2010s, the last 10 years, being particularly bad. And as you can see, the UK's productivity growth has declined to really negligible levels since 2010. The only country that has done marginally worse than ours is Italy. So the combination of very low growth, dramatic decline in the in the, the sorts of jobs that used to be created, supported by industry, and high inequality has destabilized economies. Uh, the legitimacy of our political system, I think, uh, through its impact on people's lives. Um, Raghuram Rajan of the Chicago University, well-known figure, argued that easy credit paper over these trends. But that blew up then in the next huge shock, uh, well, the next huge development, which is the financial crisis. The scale and visibility of the crisis rapidly destabilized further people's sense of the legitimacy of both our democracy and our market system. And this, uh, these next two charts will illustrate this. The, um, the crucial point of this chart is it shows the deviation of G, the, the relationship the relative change of GDP per head in the same economies, the G7 plus, say, seven plus uh, Spain, um, since 2007, relative to what would have happened if the 1992-2007 trend had continued. And to focus again on the UK, GDP per head in the UK to, in 2021, these are IMF figures, was more than 30% lower than it would have been if the pre-2007 trend had continued. This, by the way, is the worst performance for GDP per head and household disposable incomes in the UK, certainly since the early 20, 1920s and probably since the 19th century. It is not surprising, one, that governments can't find any revenue for the services that people expect and that lots of people are extremely dissatisfied with the state of politics and with the elites that are supposed to understand what they're doing and have delivered these outcomes. 
Now, what does this mean then for our system, the relationship with democracy in today's world? Well, there are two alternatives out there, and we need to think about what they might mean for us. Um, Branko Milanovic, in his analysis of this, defined a contrast between our sort of capitalism, which he calls liberal, which I call democratic, and he opposes that to uh, what he calls political capitalism, and I call authoritarian capitalism. And there are basically two varieties here, one of them which have very different implications for us. Authoritarian capitalism is the sort of, uh, autocratic capitalism, I should say, is the sort of thing that happens when a democratically elected politician, this is mostly what happens now, seizes power for himself and his coterie, replaces the people running the, in the core institutions of society with his own followers, replaces the lawyers and the, the judges and so forth, with whom he has appointed with his own supporters, and basically turns the state into a personal fiefdom. And this has been happening in many, many countries. The other challenger is a completely different one. It's basically the Chinese system, the bureaucratic system. The first challenger is not particularly effective, but it's, it's the sort of direction some of our countries risk going in. The other challenger is a Chinese system, which despite its many obvious defects, has succeeded in mobilizing resources to achieve growth on a scale not seen anywhere else and to become a superpower economically and in other dimensions within just three decades. So liberal democracy, if we think of that as the Western system, faces two massive dangers. One, that because of its loss of legitimacy, we will elect people who will basically be prepared to hollow out the democratic system for their own personal ends. And I think that is what Trump represents. The other possibility is that we will fail so dramatically that we will lose legitimacy in much of the world and China will gain increasing power and influence in it. And I say this whilst adding, by the way, incidentally, not coincidentally, my book argues very strongly for maintaining cooperation with China. So this then leads to my very last thing I want to say about the challenge of renewal, which is the broad theme of the second half of the book. I think the renewal of our democracy and capitalism has to be animated by an overwhelming idea, that of shared citizenship, and so a commitment to achieving the best possible outcome for the welfare of our citizens. If democracy is to work, we cannot think of ourselves only as individuals, as consumers, workers, business over owners, and so forth. We must think of ourselves as joined in a democratic polity as citizens. And such citizenship has to have three overriding aspects loyalty to democratic, political, and legal institutions, and the values of open debate and mutual tolerance that underpin them, concern for the ability of fellow citizens to live a fulfilled life, and that a desire to create an economy that allows citizens to flourish. And we have failed in these respects, and if we continue to fail, 
our civilization in the form that we've known it may not survive. I don't think we can do this by going back to the past. We can't reconstruct the society of 50 or 60 years ago, and in most respects we shouldn't want to. But yet think some things clearly remain the same. Human beings have to act collectively as well as individually, and acting in this way within a democracy means acting and thinking as citizens, as the Greeks told us. And if we do not do so, democracy will fail. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you very much, Martin. So we'll, I'll turn first to Diane Coyle, who will give us a, a, a response, uh, and then to Jesse. Thank you. Thank you, Martin, for the, the talk and, and the book. Um, uh, I'm going to focus on the capitalism part of what you talked about, assuming that's the division of responsibilities between me and Jesse. And um, you gave us the, the macroeconomic picture about what's been going on. I do micro thinking, I think about the structure of markets. And if you think about some of our most important industries in recent times, we have a food industry that's highly processing foods, making us obese and ill. We've got a finance industry that takes money away from us rather than making it for us. We've got a pharmaceutical industry that needs people to be ill and in one extreme case has actually been killing people. We've got a tech industry that has delivered exactly what people said they did not want it to do, which is substitutes for human creativity in art and music and so on. So I'm exaggerating a bit, but you get the point. And in the US and the UK in particular, um, living standards for many people, for many middling people, as Martin described them, have been going backwards in a sustained way. Not a recession, but a multi-year period of downward mobility for the first time since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So what the late great Will Baumol used to call the free market innovation machine just isn't working well. And I don't know whether to describe it as broken or going rogue, but it's not working for people. And that's a, that's a big problem. We're also in the middle of two huge technological transitions to a different basis of energy in our societies away from fossil fuels and towards a completely different um, form of, of communication and interaction and all of the uh, consequences of that that we've seen, some of them directly political consequences. And they're happening at the same time. They're what economists call, refer to as general purpose technologies, and when you get that kind of disruption, to use the cliched word, um, this fundamentally alters the structure of the economy and society. How is value added, how are resources used, and who gets to keep the value that's created? And that always means conflicts of interest. And so periods of those kinds of disruption, think about printing, steam, electricity, they're associated with social turbulence, and that's always been the case because of these, this contestation over who is getting the value, how is it being distributed. Now, I've known Martin for quite a long time, and I always used to think that he was insanely pessimistic, and I was a sunny optimist by comparison, but actually I'm quite pessimistic now as well. Um, Ideas matter, I agree about that, and about the importance of the idea of citizenship and not thinking that we can run a whole society 
as if we're individualistic profit or income maximizers, and that's important. And there are signs that that kind of intellectual framework through which we've governed our societies, particularly the US and the UK for the past 40 years, is changing. So the ideas matter. But any way that I can think of to fix the market economy in ways that create broad-based benefits for lots of people, in ways that mean the amazing innovations in AI that have happened over the past months bring benefits to everybody in society. That they start All of the, the ways I can think of start with political leadership that has a kind of strategic vision. And we're in a country where you get a new strategy every year. So how do we get from um, the broken system that we have which is breaking politics as well as the economy and capitalism um, to something that's more um, uh, beneficial to everybody in society and, and restart that innovation machine. Now, there are signs in the US that uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, has a strategic vision and an industrial policy and is implementing that. But that's fragile. I wouldn't just describe American politics as in a healthy state at the moment. The EU has gained fresh purpose from Brexit and um, is similarly inching its way towards a strategy. Um, but there's conflict on the continent of Europe, so I don't know how well they're going to go. And here in the UK, um, we're kind of left behind. So I think that's probably a good segue for Jeff. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you um, very much indeed, uh, Diane, for the uh, ultimate LSE, intellectual hospital pass, uh, <laughs> which I will try to, to deal with. And, and thank you, Martin. I mean, what a gripping, brilliant book and how incredibly exciting it is to be talking about it uh, with such a distinguished group and I mean, such a distinguished institution. Um, I mean, uh, 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 let's all, uh, I love uh, a good Aristotle quote, like the next man and, uh, and woman. And um, when I last translated Meriden Agan, it meant nothing too much, not never too much. And I don't think that actually that Aristotle necessarily would have been hostile to something occasionally being too much. But we know that when it comes to the status or the system or the institution, constitution, or polity, then, then, then never too much is not just his recipe for a state, it's also his recipe for human well-being. Uh, at the individual level. So let me give you another Aristotle quote, which is Aristotle says that uh, humans are the only species capable of deliberating about their own self-governance. That is what distinguishes human beings, that they are the only species capable of deliberating about their own self-governance. And so this invitation, not just in this book, but more generally, the, the challenge that Martin is posing to us all to think again about the conditions of our own self-governance is profoundly important and has the deepest possible philosophical and political roots. Now, I would say that there is a risk. I, I, I think it falls to one mug in the room to be the optimist. And uh, since the other positions have been occupied, I'm going to take that position here. And uh, I'm not going to be absurdly optimistic because I think an awful lot of Martin's diagnosis is, is spot on. Uh, but I would flag a couple of things. One is we're operating in a world in which um, 
uh, human beings have become astonishingly sentimentalized in the way they think about uh, each other, in the way they think about the world, their own histories, their future, their nations. Uh, and uh, I think there's a constant risk of seeing ideological change everywhere and, and drawing from that, often I think incorrectly, the idea of false consciousness. If only these little people hadn't been seduced by the ideological snake oil of the latest charlatans, then we would be doing the right thing. And of course, there are so many cases in which that is true, it's hard not to be quite persuaded about that. But it's also possible to worry about whether the, um, the, non, the non-political, the non-snake oil, as it were, or the, or the latently snake oilish without realizing it, uh, elites have done such a great job themselves. And that's a question we might ask ourselves. Um, and there's a, there's a rather pregnant moment in the book uh, where uh, uh, Martin talks about this idea of um, uh, 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 what you might call, I think he calls it uh, 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 democratic illiberalism. And I, I think that's a, a serious challenge. Uh, our lives seem to be coming in strange ways l- less and less liberal in the cause of democracy. And, and why should that be? So let me just say a couple of things. Um, if we are deliberating about the conditions of our own self-conscious, of our own well-being, uh, then we must heed seriously the argument that Martin makes that, that liberal democracies, rather than, as it were, preening themselves on their historical achievement in becoming free and capitalistic, uh, should perceive a latent ideological similarity and a, common, a commonality that might give them some scope for linking an international partnership in ways that have not yet been contemplated and uh, and uh, uh, recognizing in perhaps a slightly more self-conscious way than they have done. I think that's true. Uh, but it does also, I think, demand that we think more deeply still about the nature of the systems in which we're living. And let me just give you a little example. So uh, uh, take the, co- the concept of a political party. Now, Larry Diamond's a genius in many ways, think about these things, but his definition of democracy doesn't mention political parties. Political parties are completely foundational to democracy. So uh, it's arguable that Britain was pre-democratic from the early 18th century um, uh, because you could change your government as a result of a change in public opinion. And we didn't have political parties until the 1760s. But after that, you could change your government in response to public opinion to a group of politicians who had set out a platform which you knew in some sense you were voting for. Now, I think that is a profoundly democratic move, or pre-democratic move, and we should acknowledge that. We shouldn't get too hung up on the essential, now essential, aspects of universal suffrage in order to understand the latent democratic instinct behind that. And, and I think one of the reasons for why that's important is because political parties serve multiple goals. If you look at countries that we, we would broadly condemn, the thing that is so obvious about them is not that they lack universal suffrage, it is that they lack political parties. They lack alternative governments in being. And those political parties, where they are in being, are often not functioning very well. So one of the things that Martin rightly diagnoses is what you might call adverse selection in political elites. You know, why why aren't we getting the politicians we want, um, but we're only getting the ones we voted for? Well, that's possibly part of the reason. Um, uh, 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 But also, of course, that in turn then uh, uh, links to a worry about the idea of a constitution. So in America, where they revere the constitution, the events of the last few years have shown the constitution is deeply problematic and fragile simply because 
you can have a contested presidential election in which the loser does not recognize the result. And far from that being something which, as it were, a, a, a polity can shrug off, it turns out that it's almost impossible uh, to deal with that. Now, uh, uh, that's an undisclosed and unimagined fragility in the US Constitution, uh, an instrument that is revered in that country. In Britain, we care nothing about the British Constitution. The British Constitution has played a blinder in the last few years, in case you hadn't noticed. We had one prime minister who um, was getting a bit too big for his boots get summarily executed last year in the um, most, uh, 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 the bloodiest possible political bloodbath. And we had another one who tried to um, show what they were worth and it turned out to be, um, that was insufficient as well. And the constitution dealt with them. So I think I'd like a little bit more focus on the functioning of parties and of constitutions and the way we think about these issues. And, uh, uh, and the way they select um, for quality, because those things can also be rightly interrogated. And it is a paradox that we do not revere our constitution, do we pay no attention to it at all, we think we have an American constitution writ small. In fact, we have something radically different, we have an evolved constitution, we love evolution in science, we worry about it in politics, uh, but it's served its purpose extraordinarily well. As I might add, a little bit more controversially perhaps in these contexts, has the idea of first past the post. And if you don't like first past the post, ask yourself whether you really would like to see people with very far right or very far left opinions represented in Parliament with the airtime that you get in a modern media age. I personally don't think that's a very good idea. I recognize that's a political view, but I personally don't. So if we're thinking in those terms, let me just give you one um, final challenge, uh, uh, which goes back to this point about uh, legitimacy, which is at the core of Martin's argument. Of course we must have politicians. Of course we must have uh, political, people in, political, in positions of power, wherever they may be, um, who recognize what used to be referred to as the duties of, of the power that they carried with them. That power was itself, as Disraeli once said, a trust. And therefore, that they should have their persons, their beings, their history, their past, their previous achievements before they went into politics, stately referring to and reflecting a conception of the public welfare. Of course, that's absolutely right. But let's put the thought a different way and ask ourselves the question uh, in slightly more controversial spirit. What happens when some entity, or as it may happen to be the world's most successful economy, the economy that has listed more people in history faster out of poverty than any other economy in history, is a despotic capitalist one? What happens when its challenge is not merely that it has achieved that and the legitimacy that goes with that, but although it's a non-proselytizing economy, I'm referring, of course, to China or polity, it is nevertheless a polity which is uh, uh, posing the most profound ideological threat increasingly to the, the Western order that Martin rightly celebrates. But what is it doing? It is, it is, uh, uh, it is denouncing the waste, the short-termism, the inequality, the uh, uh, inexpert guidance of these Western democracies. Uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is promoting conceptions of the history of these Western democracies which paint them as brutally imperialistic and colonial uh, uh, powers that have left nothing but good, uh, nothing but bad in their, in their wake. Uh, it is redefining the idea of the public good in terms of a long-term focus on public economic well-being, independent of what that public might actually believe or want at any particular moment, all of which are aspects of delegitimization. So if I had a worry about the book we have here, it is that Martin perfectly diagnoses the concern that is of delegitimization, of the loss of popular consent and authority, 
but inadequately reflect on, on the, the severe challenge being posed by China and its acolytes, bought, sold, traded, and supported around the world, because that, I think, is a very serious threat to our country as well. Thank you. So, uh, thanks very much, and, and in a moment I'm going to ask Martin to, to, to respond. But let me add my one question, a kind of paradox that lies behind this. We live in an era when we have more education and educated people than in the history of the world, and particularly more educated people in the democracies that we want to defend. Um, and yet, that doesn't seem to have been, a, a, of course we don't have a counterfactual, maybe things would have been even worse. But there is an argument, and, and, and uh, it surfaces in, in a variety of forms, not least in Anne Case and Angus Deaton's Deaths of Despair book, that one of the biggest fault lines in modern democracies between those with and without education. And it's not an economic fault line. There's a whole series of attitudinal differences and other things that go along with being educated. There's a lack of deference. In an earlier era, um, you know, I was the first in my family, as many people in the room were, to go to university. We have parents who believe that the, the educated elite were their betters and that they should, um, to some extent, um, show deference towards educated elites. Now, some of those upstarts have themselves got educated. We don't believe that anymore. And we actually rather resent the behavior of the educated elites rather than deferring to them. And I wonder where that plays. You didn't talk about that, but I wonder if that plays at all in, into your story. Anyway, um, uh, Martin, why don't you just respond a little to what you've heard, and then we'll open it up to the, to the well, my reaction basically is obviously I was far too optimistic. And, <laughs> uh, the, this book is my angle on what's been going on. And I'm an economist of a certain kind, so I focus in detail on things I know most about. But I have added in, I do talk about parties, not a great length. I talk quite a bit about uh, tech, and other, uh, and other forms of what I call rentier capitalism, broadly defined. But I would agree that I cover so many subjects uh, that inevitably much of them, much of it is inadequate. The, and I've said this completely, and the, uh, probably the thing that I focused on least in the economics was exactly what Diana talks about, which is, uh, Diane, sorry, uh, was uh, um, the, um, the future waves of difficulty we confronted. I look a lot about aging and, uh, and the associated change. I have a lot on it, immigration and how that, the, the politics and economics of that. But I, uh, I've tended to the view there are, there's an existing catastrophic problem, which is big tech and media. And there is a coming catastrophic problem, which is AI. And I do discuss a bit the former, but I think it's really hard. And I mean, the, uh, the particular difficulty is we might want to nationalize these companies and make them public benefit companies, but they're not ours to nationalize, and the Americans will probably resist. And we can't easily replace them either. This is a very important point. There are an awful lot of players in the world economy now that are not under our control and never will be because they're not ours and they're never going to be. Um, this is really important and I do discuss that a, a bit. 
So I think Diana has added in some very important uh, issues about our future um, and the extent to which we can shape it. I have really been stunned by the things that people who supported the Brexit revolution thought they would be able to control as a result of it. But when it seemed to me absolutely obvious that nothing important will be added to the things that we could control as a result of Brexit, and all the things that they wanted to do, we could have done anyway. So now to Jesse's point, I think I haven't said enough about parties, though I do say something about it, uh, about them. They are central to politics, and but I don't. I, I tend to be on the other side of the first past the post position, but I'm open to persuasion on that. I have much more radical ideas that, which will horrify and witless, I think, on this. Um, my, probably my most radical idea in the book that we should have been influenced by the Greeks. Uh, uh, um, we should have a party, House of Houses of Parliament, which is chosen entirely by lot. We can discuss it later, um, uh, because I think there's a problem with representation. I I think. That's, um, uh, but I think the issues of how your polity is to be changed and the relative merits of different forms of constitutional structure is very, very important. And I do think, and I discussed this at great length, the Americans have some very, very big problems, not only as a result of the, in the way the Constitution is shaped in this way, but in terms of the extraordinary range of rights that have been ascribed in the recent decades to plutocrats for buying politics. I mean, that's really a very, very big problem for any democracy. But anyway, they have convincingly added to the, to the uh, challenges. I do agree with Jesse that it is very, very encouraging that we can throw overboard politicians who should never have been there in the first place. Uh, this is clear, but it doesn't solve the really big problem, I think, is that we have a range of economic and other challenges in this country now that no political force I now see seems willing and able to tackle at all. And this is what I call the populist paradox, which is when politicians are selected on the basis of the plausible stories they tell to people when they've lost confidence in the elites, uh, they tend, and this is a Latin American cycle, they tend then to uh, offer solutions that don't work or they don't offer solutions at all. And the process is a cycle of disillusionment. Now, the final question you asked is interesting. I do discuss quite a lot this profound change in our society, which is um, associated with mass university education, um, which has created essentially, seems pretty obvious to me now, a new class which has its own interests and very strong feeling that it has not been treated well enough. The most interesting thing about its emergence and its role in our society now is it has clearly played a significant part in shifting members of the former working class to the right. And that's a problem. That really is a problem. Now, we can discuss why that's happened. I discuss a bit of it in the book. But it's, I think, an immensely important fact 
that the parties of the left are increasingly becoming not parties of the working class that used to be their base, but parties of graduates um, who aren't very happy with their position either. So the number of discontented people in our society is exploding, but they disagree radically on what they're angry about. Excellent. Thank you very much. So what I'm going to do is throw open the floor. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions, and I'm going to take them in batches of three, and I, and I ask you to, to be very brief in, in, in posing questions. So I'm going to go one from each segment. So I'll start uh, over there on the, on the end of the row. If you could take the mic up, up there. Keep it brief. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Here we go. Howdy, Mr. Wolf. My name is Zach. I'm American. Um, <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? From Nebraska, if you know where that is. But um, what was I going to say? So I was thinking, like, before I came to LSE, I was really involved in Republican politics. You talk about your solution about global citizenship, about participation in a global economy. And I think to myself, uh, I didn't mean global. I meant national. OK, forgive me. I heard global. But my idea, what I was thinking to myself when I heard what I thought I heard at least was, you know, a lot of the solutions about understanding how we interact in a global political economy, at least, is that it doesn't sell very well with people from my part of America, from people who 75% you know, a dime a dozen will vote for Trump, vote for anybody with an R after their name. What's your message to people from that persuasion who, for better or worse, are really concerned with the idea of a greater, more interconnected global system? Okay, next question. Let's keep them going so we can max, uh, max out. There was one. Stand the front here. Yeah. Most people in the world have an unprecedented ability to access information, uh, connect with each other, organize themselves. Uh, that seems good, doesn't it? Okay. Hi. One of the most uh, interesting uh, ideas that Martin brought up in the book and discussion around it was the idea that... Uh, interest payments should not on loans should not be tax deductible now that seems to me like a purely administrative uh, idea that could be brought in by any government and yet it is about as probable as nationalizing the banks tomorrow so w where can the impetus for new ideas even pragmatic ones like that which the labor party would run a mile from are to come from Okay, so we have, what do you say to Republicans from Nebraska, information technology, <laughs> and interest payments on loans? So actually, um, thank you very much for the first question, because um, it shows how badly I was at explaining this. I had a really controversial, what I thought many people here would find a really controversial and offensive view, which is democracy is about citizenship of a place. That's what it means. And therefore, democracy is in some fundamental respect exclusive, not inclusive. It excludes non-citizens. And I discussed this at length. It doesn't mean that one has no responsibilities to the rest of the world. And it certainly doesn't mean it makes sense to cut 
of all communication, trade, and all the rest of it for the rest of the world. But politics have to focus as a necessary condition for this to work on convincing the body politic that what politicians are doing will improve their welfare in relevant respects. You can discuss what that means. So that basic core idea that the politics of a democratic society are profoundly local, it, it seems to me inescapable, because we're not going to have global citizenship. Now that then creates some very profound questions, which a number of people here will suddenly immediately raise. Well, then how do you relate to one another? And I have a whole chapter on that, and I'm not going to go into that. But let me be very, very clear. My problem with Trump and the Republicans is I don't think they're going to do anything for the vast majority of the citizens you're talking about. So I think they're a cons. They're a con, but of course people disagree with it. Information revolutions. Um, I think information revolutions are absolutely wonderful um, if they're information. And, and, the, and of course there's a profound questions about what you can do to manage this but I am a little bit concerned about algorithmic systems which are designed to spread things, not because they're true, but because they will get the largest amount of response from the users. Um, and they've worked out by now that nothing does that better than anger. That's a problem. It is a problem. Finally, I have lots of technocratic solutions of the type you mentioned. I'm very, very keen on land taxes, as you know. Uh, I think all tax havens should be closed down tomorrow, and all uh, taxes attributed to tax havens should simply be not recognized. The idea that the intellectual property of major companies is actually located in the Cayman Islands is absurd. All this could be changed overnight. There's no difficulty about this. The reason you should find out where some of the, you know, What's, what's this wonderful story? Um, I'm told this, so this may be untrue. When the Treasury got its building privatized and uh, leased it back uh, to itself, the money it paid went to an offshore entity that paid no tax. <laughs> now, that, that is that an is, almost that is true. That, that that is true. That, almost that. perfect example of complete insanity. And my book has lots of them of that kind. And we could stop all that nonsense to tomorrow. Um, uh, uh, and we could change our planning laws and we could do lots and lots of other things. So I'm, I go, go in for, um, Productive, uh, productive, productive. What Karl Popper, great the professor here, called um, uh, uh, um, social um, piecemeal social engineering. I think there are an awful lot of things like that we can do without getting a consent consent on doing everything that will transform our society into something else. And if politics would just focus on that thing, those things we would get somewhere. Of course, for reasons that already mentioned, there are huge lobbies against any of these changes, which is why we're stuck. Great. So we'll hit, listen, Sharon, can you give us an, an online question, please? I have one from Ian Oakley, Citizen of the World. Since the 1980s, income and wealth inequalities in Western democracies have grown hugely. Surely this is what has undermined democratic legitimacy in recent years across the West? Very good. Now, I'm going to go... Um, let, me, let 
me see. Uh, let's go for one on, on this side. Just pick one at random. It's your choice. <laughs> Thank you. To what extent does this message resonate outside of the United States and Europe? We're running the risk, even if what Diane was suggesting, new industrial policy protectionism, we might end up in what the high representative for foreign policy in the EU said, the peaceful garden surrounded by the jungle, uh, and, and that wouldn't be a solution for most of the world either way. Thank you very much for the talk. Uh, my name is Diaz. I'm not American, just to start here. Uh, I just wanted to ask on sort of if the, if the idea of citizenship is kind of uh, as a solution to the current crisis of democratic capitalism, that I guess assumes that currently we are not proper citizens. So I was wondering what kind of institution or an agent within the democratic systems should act as a kind of an intermediary or something that can help us facilitate to move towards citizens. It would be particularly interesting to hear your thoughts as we are represented by panelists from education, from politics, and from media, financial times. Thank you. Okay, Martin, back, back to you. Okay. Inequality is a very complex idea, and I only discussed some aspects of it. Um, wealth, income, uh, and I'm not even talking about gender and all the rest of it. So, however, the, the statistics are reasonably clear, and this is an important point for me, that the extent of the change of inequality varied quite considerable across countries. And it varied both in terms of the changes in the pre-redistribution uh, uh, inequality and the changes in the post-redistribution inequality. And one of the reasons I think this is important is it this showed that even though all these economies globalized in some ways, they opened up, the results for their citizens varied very considerably. Um, and in particular, uh, the US clearly had the largest rise in inequality, the highest level in, in income. I won't go to wealth, but it's true there too. Um, and the UK, because of what happened in the AGs, mostly is in sort of second rank. So the inequality story is very subtle. And it means that there's more political choice than we think. By the way, it's because I don't believe, and I do have a discussion, that trade, in particularly, was a dominant cause of the rises of inequality. I don't come in for out, because that's my in favor of protection, which I think is very problematic. This links then to this fundamental issue that's raised. Is this all just about US and Europe? Well. Um, for me, very definitely not. The, um, if the, um, we can start, I don't want to have a debate about the Inflation Reduction Act, what it means, all the rest of it, but I don't have any huge problem if uh, industrial countries like the US or uh, Europe accelerate the green transition um, through the use of government money. I mean, that seems to me a perfectly reasonable thing to do in the, in, given an emergency. But since the aim of making this transition is to deal with climate change worldwide, and I've written a lot about this, we're not going to cheat very much for ourselves if we don't ensure that the same thing happens everywhere. I mean, that, so this is one of those cases where being a rational domestic citizen, that's why I discuss these issues at various stage, has to include being rationally globalist because the world is affecting us. So the idea, the sort of one form 
of looking at this issue is to say, well, we're concerned about our citizens, so nothing that happens in the rest of the world matters, and we're going to ignore it. That obviously, surely, is crazy. And I think there's a, lots of subtle issues there that we have to de discuss. The final question, well, you raised this issue, what does being a citizen mean in a modern democracy? Well, there are a couple of interesting ideas here that one of them I talked about, selecting a House of Parliament by law. There's an interesting set of ideas about people's juries, which have worked remarkably well in certain contexts. The best example I could find was the use of a citizen's jury to address and ultimately resolve the abortion issue in Ireland. It's a very important example of bringing ordinary people to discuss things. And I have been thinking, though I'm not, it's not in the book, and it's incredibly dangerous. The Swiss do these referenda really rather well, and it's part of what makes them as citizens. With modern technology, we could do quite a few things like that, bypassing people like Jesse. And right at the moment, I'm increasingly suspicious to think that maybe bypassing people like Jesse, though not Jesse, wouldn't <laughs> be a bad thing. And we could consider um, getting a pin, using opinion. Uh, um, through um, the, the internet and all the rest of it, as a way of getting some real sense of what people want and care about. Um, so maybe we should be more imaginative about the way new technologies can allow people to sense they're part of the discussion of policy, even though I am fully aware of the problems that that would also create. But I think we, sh we do need to be a bit more representative more imaginative about these things than we have been. And it's part of the agenda that I think we now have to address to revive our politics. Very good. Another online one. Sharon. Sorry, Keith. Okay, here's one from Duncan Reed, who's an LSE vis visitor. Has democratic capitalism undermined itself by failing to distribute the rewards of capitalism fairly? Uh, yes, you know, that's very simple. <laughs> that's obviously, that's obvious. Well, I mean, I think it's not just the rewards of legitimate practice, but uh, that we can re reasonably discuss uh, how um, uh, wealth might be taxed. But it's also the problem, in my view, and I've got a lot on that, that some of the rewards are not legitimate, which is, I think, even more problematic for the system uh, in the sense that they are the result of what uh, um, Jesse's hero, Adam Smith, would regard as not entirely legitimate business behavior. Right. And business has to operate within, surely one of his most profound ideas, within the context of what is regarded as morally legitimate. And if you lose that and they're seen as thieves, then you lose the system. Okay, we have, if you, just go up and I'll shout when, to, when you get to the row. Okay, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. That row there, if you can pass it along, thank you. Um, you mentioned low productivity and low income growth over the last 10 to 15 years. Have politicians failed us or just run out of ideas? I, I missed the last bit of your question. Have, have politicians failed us or just run out of ideas? Why, why don't you do that now? Because I think uh, the answer is both, but it's also genuinely difficult. So 
I'm not going to have a long discussion about why this has happened. Um, but one of, it's pretty obvious the sorts of things we want to do. But the, I do think, uh, as we know things now, I'm going to leave aside the AI revolution and what it might mean. I don't know. Um, but as things are now, we have economies, and I discussed that at great length, which really are not going to find it easy to replicate the sorts of productivity growth we had in the past. Um, this will not be the case if it turns out on a massive scale that the energy revolution that my friend Nick Stern proposes is going to reduce energy costs dramatically. I'm not persuaded yet that this is the case. He will tell me I'm wrong. And the, uh, but if that doesn't happen, I think really accelerating productivity growth in our societies is going to be very difficult. But they could have done much better. And if they were going to do things better, then they would have had to change a number of policies, some of which would have been quite difficult to do. So to take one example, the UK has the lowest rate of investment in the Western world, basically. Right? We're not going to grow faster if we don't invest more. If we're going to invest more, since we have a massive current account deficit already, it's almost certain we're going to have to raise savings in this society. And to raise savings in the society means we have to reduce somebody's consumption. No government wants to contemplate the sorts of policies that would be required if we wanted to lower consumption in the society by a significant amount, three or four percentage points of GDP, which is 100 billion pounds. So there are things you could do, but they're hard. Can I add a sentence? Yeah, I was going to say, I want to pass down the line and then I'll... Yeah, I promise. Okay. So I think this links to the previous question about why the fruits of capitalism are failing to deliver for people, and they're failing to deliver productivity, because there are amazing ideas and innovations. There was a paper published a few a little while ago, um, are new ideas getting harder to find? And the answer is no, they're not at all. They're all over the place. What's not happening, they're not being commercialised and turned into products that serve ordinary people well, bring them benefits, and pay people higher incomes. And that's where the machine is failing. It's nothing to do with the ideas. Jesse, I don't know if you have a, a final thought on anything you've heard. Uh, well, I mean, there's so much of, of interest that it would be hard to, to, to start and stop. But let me just say a couple of quick things. So, so one, one is go back to your question actually, about education. So why is it that as people got educated, as it were, the decline has accelerated in elites and um, the growth of uh, ressentiment, as it used to be called? Um, I, I think the reason is because we fundamentally misunderstand the concept of reason. Okay, we think of human beings as being rational animals uh, who choose their ends uh, using by consulting their reason. I don't think that's true. I think David Hume is right and Dan Sperber uh, more recently. Um, reason is the slave of the passions, yeah. and it's really its function is really to explain why we were right all along, um, whatever the decision we took was. And I, I think which, sorry? I quote that. Good. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. And um, um, how wise you are, Martin. Let <laughs> me say so. Apologise for not having got to that bit of the book. Um, the, the, uh, uh, so so that's the, then you come to the question of what a rational citizen is. Well, I can tell you what a rational citizen is. Uh, it's not a corporation, right? So one of the great big parts of Martin's book is where he talks about how corporations have become uh, dissociated from the public good and the public welfare. And this, again, I think bears on some of the points that Diane was raising. Uh, and you know, it's not just a matter of CEO pay, which has gone up by dramatic multiples. Uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, it's also that 
the ancient idea, which actually was an original, original idea of a corporation, it's essentially a public entity with always an eye to the public purpose, uh, has been lost. And uh, that is a, is a tragedy, actually, because it only it doesn't just lead to bad outcomes, uh, it also leads to a progressive delegitimization of corporate behavior as such. But I don't think any sane person thinks that we're going to have a good story to tell about the recovery of democratic capitalism, uh, which doesn't involve a story about how we can get corporations to invest more sanely uh, and more intelligently than they are doing at the moment. And, you know, the other part of that story, obviously, is not just the way in which corporations have been enfranchised for political purposes in America, but the way in which um, the financialization of this economy in the UK, and indeed, I'm afraid, sadly, also the American economy, which traditionally had rather a good balance between Main Street and Wall Street, has accelerated. So a lot of the story here is about that, and that in turn feeds the rental, uh, the rent capturing, rent extraction economy that, that Martin hinted at earlier when he talked about Adam Smith. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm afraid I have to draw things to a close with apologies to those who, who couldn't get in with their questions. There were many of you, and I apologize again. Um, but my job to wrap things up is to thank Jesse, Diane, and particularly Martin. Go out and buy the book. There will be an opportunity for you to do so. Please don't come to the front, because Martin has to exit to go to his book signing table. For those of you who are keen, you can have a signed copy. But uh, he, he will have to exit quite speedily to get to that position. So please don't come and stop <laughs>